Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech, and may the 4th be with you. This episode is originally airing on May 4th, 2018, sometimes known as Star Wars Day for the whole May the 4th pun. And on May 25th, 1977, Star Wars, later known as Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, hit the theaters. And that movie introduced a massive weapon capable of destroying planets. And it was no moon. It was a space station. And it was called the Death Star. So in honor of May the 4th, we are going to take a look at the Star Wars mythos around the Death Star and compare it to what it would take to make something like that uh, for realsies. And this is part one of a two-parter on the Death Star because there are a lot of different systems to cover. In this episode, I'm going to be looking mainly at support systems aboard the Death Star. And in part two, we're going to look at the bim, bam, boom, bang, bangs, also known as the weapons aboard the Death Star. Not to mention a particular flaw that for a long time people said was the result of Imperial oversight and later on as the movies came out, it was revealed to have been a planned vulnerability in the Death Star design. We'll also talk a little bit about the Death Star 2, sequel to Death Star, and, of course, Starkiller Base. So, for those of you who aren't Star Wars fans, uh, first of all, this episode's probably not going to mean a whole lot to you, but if you want to listen, I would love to have you along for the ride, but the original Death Star appears in three films as an actual thing in progress. Uh, those three films would be in chronological order of release, Star Wars 4, A New Hope, Star Wars 3, Revenge of the Sith, which of course came out decades after Star Wars 4 did, and Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. But there's also a hologram of the Death Star that appears briefly in Star Wars 2, Attack of the Clones. Then there's also the second Death Star. That one appears in Star Wars 6, Return of the Jedi. And there's the big brother to the Death Star, a.k.a. the Starkiller base, which shows up in Star Wars 7, The Force Awakens. And I'll chat about all of them in these episodes. Now, before I jump into this, I need to talk a little bit about canon versus expanded universe. So Star Wars is a peculiar thing. There are movies, there are television specials, there are cartoons, there are comic books, there are novels. There are a ton of different forms of media that all tie into the Star Wars universe. However, if you want to go with absolute canon, as in the stuff that is the only really concrete canon in the Star Wars universe, you have to go with just the films, which means that Stories, characters, and even established facts created in other Star Wars media can be contradicted by the films, and that's that. So you could have a very popular novel series that creates uh, a whole mythology around Star Wars, and then the next movie comes out and contradicts that. Well, the movies trump everything else, so just keep that in mind. Now, that being said, we're going to look at some expanded universe sources because the movies, while they are canon do not go into exhaustive detail about how stuff works because that's not what the movie's about. The movies are adventure stories. They're really, they're more like epic fantasy set in a science fiction setting. 
than they are a hard science fiction film. So they concern themselves with the story elements, the hero's journey, that kind of stuff, not the particulars of how the technology works. So a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about comes from expanded universe sources. Just know that a future Star Wars movie could come out and they say, well, it turns out that the Star Wars uh, Death Star's laser was powered by elves. Well, that's going to contradict everything else, but if that's what the movie says, that's what that's what it means. I don't think that'll happen, but I just need to say it. Within the canon of Star Wars, the design of the Death Star came from a race of creatures called the Geonosians, who were working on behalf of a separatist group attempting to splinter off from the Galactic Republic, or at least appearing to. Uh, these are the events that happen in the prequel trilogies, so Star Wars 1, 2, and 3. And the Geonosians were working on what they dubbed the Ultimate Weapon Project, and they entrusted their plans to Count Dooku, who appeared to be the leader of the Separatists. Dooku was in reality Darth Tyrannus, a Sith Lord, a.k.a. a big bad guy, who passed the plans along to his boss, Darth Sidious, also known as Chancellor and then later on Emperor Palpatine. Palpatine was essentially controlling both sides of this galactic conflict, both the Galactic Republic and the Separatist group. He was manipulating both sides, and he was orchestrating the whole thing in an attempt to grab power. He was able to use that conflict to convince the Republic side to fund the construction of this space station. He was able to play on fears that the Separatists, who you got to remember he was also controlling, they were just a puppet group, but he was trying to convince the Republic uh, people, the, the folks who were in charge of the purse strings for the Galactic Republic, that the Separatists were already working on building a space station of similar capability, so there was going to be a space station gap. So it's kind of like an arms race, in a way. And so that was kind of the selling point Palpatine goes to the Galactic Republic with. He says, we need to build this thing. You need to be able to uh, to give me the funds to do it. And that's where the initial funding for the Death Star took off before uh, the Chancellor became the Emperor. And once he became the Emperor, he pretty much had to bot. He got the right to boss everybody around and get the money no matter what. Now, by the time of the Revenge of the Sith's storyline... Construction had progressed to the point that the basic form of the Death Star was taking shape. It was kind of the framework for the Death Star. It would apparently take nearly 20 more years to finish, as Rogue One takes place 19 years after the Revenge of the Sith. And it's in Rogue One that a group of spies attempt to steal the plans for the space station so that the Rebellion can look for a possible weakness. And then in A New Hope, the Rebellion blows it all up. Well, specifically, Luke Skywalker blows it up by firing a weapon called a, a you know, a to or torpedo weapon down a ventilation shaft that sets off a chain reaction within the station's reactor core, leading to catastrophic failure. Uh, now, one thing I should mention that's a conflict between canon and the former expanded universe is that some works had established that the Death Star was constructed in orbit around a planet called Despair, because Star Wars is subtle. Despair is spelled D-E-S-P-A-Y-R-E -E because that's how clever people writing for Star Wars can be. But Despair was populated by slave labor and criminals. They were all working for the Empire. And further, the expanded universe goes on to explain that the Death Star's commander, Grand Moff Tarkin, chose to test a not-yet-fully-capable super laser against this planet, Despair. 
blowing it up after hitting it with three blasts from the super laser, which conflicts with other accounts of the Death Star's history. Rogue One tells us the Death Star was moved from Geonosia to, uh, or Geonosis, rather, I should say, to a planet called Scarif, rather than to Despair. So, the whole Despair backstory that was created for the Death Star appears to have been contradicted by later films, and that's an example of what I was talking about earlier. Uh, so there, there are branching pathways of the history of the Death Star, and they do con- contradict one another. In some versions, the Geonosis version of the Death Star was actually a prototype space station and not the actual first Death Star. But there's no official canon explanation that really lays it out and says definitively this, it's this version, not that version. Anyway, let's talk to, about what it actually is. The Death Star is a space station. It's spherical in shape and it's called the size of a moon. People refer to it as, I mean, that's the big line from A New Hope is that's no moon, that's a space station. That particular detail is not terribly handy, however, because moons do not come in a standard size. They vary in size. So, for example, the moon around Earth, our moon, is 3.7 times smaller than the Earth. It has an equatorial circumference of 6,783.5 miles, or 10,917 kilometers, And it's also not as dense as the Earth. The surface gravity on our moon has an acceleration of 1.624 meters per second squared compared to Earth's surface gravitational acceleration of 9.80665, or we usually say 9.81 meters per second squared. But the Earth's moon is only the fifth largest in our solar system. The largest moon in our system is Ganymede, which is one of Jupiter's moons. It's just 2.4 times smaller than the Earth. So its equatorial circumference is 10,273 miles, or about 16,533 kilometers. It's actually larger than the planet Mercury. So the only reason it's a moon and not a dwarf planet is because it's in orbit around Jupiter rather than orbit around the Sun. So saying the Death Star is the size of a moon is not super helpful. The films don't really give any details about the Death Star space station uh, or the Starkiller base. We don't really learn about the specs from them from the movies necessarily. We see they're huge, but we don't really get much of a frame of reference as to how huge they are. But there have been plenty of books and supplemental materials that have attempted to fill in the gaps of our knowledge. So while it may not be pure canon, we have to have some reference for our discussions, so we're going to go with some information supplied by official Star Wars supplemental sources, such as the Ultimate Visual Guide for Star Wars Rogue One. That comes in pretty handy for the Death Star in particular. According to that guide, the Death Star is 160 kilometers wide. Now, that also is a discrepancy with other sources. Some of them put the Death Star's diameter at 120 kilometers, and some say 140 kilometers. But the most recent response I could see was 160, so that's what I'm going with. 160 kilometers is about 99 miles. All right, so if we use the handy formula that uh, circumference equals 2 times pi times the radius... Not the diameter, as I initially calculated this figure. We get a figure of about 502 kilometers of circumference, or 312 miles around the equator. 
of this sphere. So in other words, that's less than one-twentieth the circumference of Earth's moon. And that's going with the larger of the measurements for the Death Star. So it's the size of a moon, but a pretty small one. The original Death Star had 357 levels, as in floors, in it, according to at least one source book. The number of people aboard the space station varies depending upon the source you're looking at. One suggested that there were around 2.25 million people aboard, and another said it was more like 1.16 million people. So I guess the answer ultimately is there were a lot of fictional people aboard that space station. And uh, some say that it, even uh, up to a billion people could have technically fit on the station. I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't actually run the geometric calculations to find out how packed it would be if that were happening. I also don't know the full density of the Death Star, so it would be hard to do. But uh, there you go. Now, according to the How Stuff Works article on how the Death Star works, the interior sections of the space station consist of 24 zones, with half of them in the northern hemisphere of the station and the other half in the southern hemisphere. And each zone has six sectors, which include general, command, military, security, service, and technical sectors. Officers oversee sectors, and zone captains oversee officers. And the Death Star commander is at the top of the food chain on the station unless the Emperor himself is on board. And in the case of the original Death Star, that would be the Grand Moff Tarkin. And uh, because this wasn't just a weapon, but also a battle station and a movable base of operations, there needed to be plenty of space for crew quarters, vehicle bays, and recreational facilities, as it turns out. It also had a detention block, as seen in A New Hope, because that's where they put Princess Leia after Darth Vader catches her. Spoiler. In a moment, we'll look at some of the basic systems aboard the Death Star, we'll explore how they work within the mythology of Star Wars, and we'll talk about if there's any connection to what we call reality. I figure we can start by talking about the Death Star's artificial gravity. How do that do? We'll find out right after we take this quick break to thank our sponsor. Now, most sources I find try to reconcile the discrepancies we see in the Star Wars movies by explaining that the Death Star actually has two different artificial gravity systems aboard it. So imagine that the Death Star is a big old orange and the peel part of the orange is a layer that has artificial gravity pulling down toward the center of the station. It would be like surface gravity, like you would experience if you were on a normal planet or moon. Uh, except it's also artificial gravity because it's meant to give you the sense of gravity you would have uh, on a planet like Earth. We, we assume that it's about 1G of gravitational force on the Death Star because people move around like it's on Earth because that's where they shot the movie. But we're assuming it's 1G. So uh, everything's being pulled in toward the center, but because of the size of the Death Star, its mass, there's no way it has enough mass to generate 1G of gravity on its own. So it has to be artificially boosted, just logically speaking. So the weight we feel when we're on Earth, is technically the surface we are on pushing back against us, essentially. So if you are in one of those levels that's in this outer layer of the Death Star, the peel of the orange, you would stand as if you were on the surface of a planet. So your feet would be pointing toward the core of the planet, your head would be pointing toward space, essentially. 
Uh, except that doesn't seem to work based upon what we've actually seen in the movies. Because if you watch A New Hope, when the Millennium Falcon gets captured by a tractor beam and pulled in toward the Death Star, it enters the equatorial trench that separates the station into northern and southern hemispheres. So it's like a belt right around the middle of the Death Star is this trench. And the Millennium Falcon is clearly coming into the trench, into a vehicle bay. And in that sequence, you see people standing in an orientation that's in line with the north and south poles of the Death Star, where the North Pole would be up and the South Pole would be down. So in other words... Imagine that the Death Star is a ball that has a top and a bottom and corresponding gravity. Now, the sources I looked at suggest that below this outermost layer, below the peel of the orange, the Death Star is made up of floors that are in that orientation, this top-bottom orientation with North Pole being the top and South Pole being the bottom and gravity just pointing toward the South Pole side of the station. This would mean that once you get past that outermost layer with the uh, the orange peel section, the orientation of gravity would change unless you were standing at the very north pole of the Death Star, in which case the two fields would be aligned. Uh, I imagine transitioning between one field of gravity and another would be really disorienting to go from where your feet are essentially facing out or are facing the core of the planet to where your feet are facing down with respect to the South Pole. Uh, I don't know how you would make that transition in a way that wouldn't totally mess you up in the process. Uh, it, I think it would be very disorienting. However, a lot of sources suggest that this is the way it has to work based upon the, the design of the Death Star as we see it in the films. The contradiction doesn't really matter in context with the story of Star Wars, uh, but it does make it darn tricky to explain how stuff actually works aboard this space station. The movies, again, don't concern themselves with this. That's not what the purpose of the movies are for. It falls to fanboys like myself to try and justify it. So we see gunners manning cannons that are mounted on the surface of the station itself, and they appear to be oriented in such a way that it's similar to a normal planet's surface gravity, and yet everything else seems to suggest gravity has that specific north-south orientation. So how would we create artificial gravity if we wanted to do it in real life? Well, since we still don't have a full understanding of the nature of gravity, we can't harness it in any meaningful way. But we can create a system that simulates gravity through rotation, except it would manifest as something very different than what you see in the Star Wars movies. So imagine you have a Death Star-sized hollow sphere. So it's the exact same size of the Death Star, but there's nothing inside it. It's just a big hollow ball. And you are inside that hollow ball. You're standing on the inside of that sphere. If we rotate the sphere, it will create a velocity that will curve around in a line along that rotation. It's a rotational velocity. This in turn will create an acceleration pointing inwards at a 90 degree angle from the velocity at any given moment toward the Death Star's center. Your mass and the acceleration into the center of the Death Star creates a virtual force, which we refer to as a centrifugal force. Now remember, I say it's a virtual force. It's what would feel like weight. This is what would hold you to the interior wall of the hollow Death Star. So 
Your feet would be closer to outer space and your head would be closer to the core of the Death Star. So the opposite of what the uh, the various sources suggest for the Death Star. Because again, this is just one way we could simulate gravity is through this rotation and the creation of a virtual force and centrifugal force. Now to create enough of that virtual force to simulate the gravity that you would experience on a planet like Earth, you need to spin to create an acceleration of 1g. Now we'd use the formula to, uh, that would be, uh, acceleration equals velocity squared divided by the radius. And the radius in this case is the radius of the Death Star. Now we know that the radius of the Death Star is 80 kilometers if we're working off the most recent version of the Death Star spec, since others suggest it could be 70 or 60 kilometers, but we're going with 80. And we know the acceleration that we want is 9.81 meters per second squared because that's the gravitational acceleration we have here on Earth, and that's what we want to simulate. So using that formula, we know it's 9.81 equals velocity squared divided by 80,000 meters, right? We take 80 kilometers, we multiply it by 1,000 meters, because that's 1,000 meters to the kilometer, we get 80,000 meters. We multiply both sides by 80,000 meters, and we get 784,800 meters squared by second squared, We take the square root of that to get the velocity, and we end up with approximately 886 meters per second. So within a minute, inside this sphere, you're traveling 53,160 meters in a circular motion on the inside of this Death Star. Now, in order to figure out how many revolutions per minute we need, we take the circumference of the Death Star, that's that 502 kilometers or 502,000 meters, And that means that we would need 0.11 rotations per minute to simulate 1g of gravity on the inside surface of the Death Star, which means the Death Star would have to rotate one full time every 10 minutes or so. So a day on the Death Star would be around 10 minutes long if it were a body orbiting a star with that speed of rotation. Now, that would only really apply along the equator. I should add, because it's a right angle to the axis of rotation. As you would move away from the equator, things would get really wonky. And along the outermost layer as well, because as you go up or inward in the Death Star, you'd be on a floor that's technically moving at a slower velocity than the floor that was below you or outer on the Death Star, because you're in a concentric circle. Each circle makes the same number of revolutions per unit of time, right? If you're doing 10 revolutions in a minute on the outside, you're still doing 10 revolutions a minute on the inside. But if the circle is smaller, you are traveling less distance, but in the same amount of time. So your velocity is lower. This would also mean that your acceleration that you would experience and therefore the centrifugal force you would experience would also be lower. So as you move toward the core, you would experience lower gravitational acceleration and you'd feel lighter as you move toward the middle. So for a space station the size of the Death Star, this could work out pretty well if you had the means to rotate the station that way. With smaller space stations, you would run into other problems because at smaller scales, this method of simulating gravity presents other challenges. For example, once you get really small, different parts of your body are going to experience different gravitational accelerations because your height represents enough distance uh, compared to the radius of the station itself that it will make a difference. You'll actually be able to feel it. The amount of gravity you experience is dependent upon the radius of the rotating structure. So if you're tall enough for that to be in effect, you're going to have these different forces or different magnitudes of force acting on you. That's really going to make it weird when you try to move around. 
Uh, also, the Coriolis effect can wreak havoc with our sense of balance. Essentially, this becomes a problem when we are moving inward or outward from the axis of rotation. So in other words, we're changing levels in the Death Star, right? We're moving up or down. Uh, experiments have shown that at lower revolutions per minute, this is rarely a problem, and the Death Star's rotation of 0.11 revolutions per minute is slow enough to probably slip below our ability to detect it, and therefore we wouldn't get space sick every time we hopped into a lift. But otherwise, uh, as we change that orientation, as we get closer to the center or further away from the center, then the amount of gravity we would experience would fluctuate and that could really make us feel pretty wonky. Now, the films never really address how artificial gravity works. We only even know that there's microgravity in the Star Wars universe because of the way ships move through stuff like debris or asteroids out in space, not to mention the Mary Poppins Princess Leia sequence from The Last Jedi, or General Leia, I suppose I should say. There's no real need to address it within the plot of the movies, and the challenges of making a movie involving space battles and microgravity are such that having artificial gravity is really a thing of convenience for the sake of the plot of the films and the the making of the movies. Next, we'll learn about how the Death Star gets around, round, get around, it gets around. But first, let's take another break to thank our sponsor. So the Death Star has two main means of propulsion, ion thrusters and hyperdrive, and we actually have developed one of those two things. Hint, it's not the hyperdrive. So let's talk about ion thrusters. So ion thrusters are a really interesting method of moving through space. And the idea is that you have an engine that can fire out positively charged particles at high velocity out of one end of a spacecraft using electricity in some way. There are a couple different methods, but the important thing to look at is just the principle of it. And because momentum within a system must be conserved, this creates thrust, moving the spacecraft forward. Newton's laws of motion imply this concept. So momentum equals mass times velocity. And both momentum and velocity are vectors. That means that they have a direction associated with their values. And the conservation of momentum tells us that the momentum of a system in its initial phase must equal the momentum of the system in its final phase, assuming all external forces that could act upon the system zero out. In other words, it's an isolated system. So you, if you have other stuff acting on a system that changes things, we're talking about an isolated system. So a spacecraft in space is, is pretty isolated. So before you initiate an ion thruster, let's say you've got a spacecraft, you are not moving with respect to space around you, at least not in any real meaningful way. You're just kind of hanging in space. There's no momentum here, right? The craft is not moving. The ions are not moving. But then you turn on the drive and the drive starts spitting out ions behind the spacecraft. That represents a change in momentum. The velocity of those particles is very high and their mass is incredibly small. However, momentum must be conserved within the system. So your spacecraft represents the system. So that means the spacecraft itself has to move in the opposite direction of the particles you're shooting out the back. Now, the spacecraft's mass is way, way, way bigger than the particles that are flying out of the ion thruster. So that means the velocity of the spacecraft will be relatively low compared to the particles. However, 
If you keep the drive going, this will act as an accelerator for the spacecraft. It's not going to accelerate quickly, but it will do so gradually, and eventually you'll start reaching very high speeds if the drive is on for the entire time. Now, with rocket fuel, you can create thrust until you run out of fuel, and then you're essentially traveling at top speed until you hit something. But with ion thrusters, you can keep accelerating steadily for a much longer time, reaching a vastly higher top speed in the process. It just takes you longer to get to your top speed, but your top speed is going to be much higher than if it were a rocket-based spacecraft. But the Death Star could also move at superliminal speeds, which means it could go faster than light, using a concept in Star Wars called hyperspace. Now, we know this must be the case because the Death Star fires upon Alderaan at the beginning of A New Hope and then moves into position to fire upon Yavin 4 at the end. Well, Alderaan is a planet in the core of the Galactic Empire, meaning the core of the galaxy itself, whereas Yavin 4 is a moon around a gas giant planet called Yavin that's in the Outer Rim territory, so on the outer side of this galaxy. To get a battle station that far from the center of a galaxy to the outer edge has to need some form of faster-than-light travel. In the Star Wars universe, spacecraft do this by tapping into an alternate dimension called hyperspace, which helps get around a big problem, because if you talk to Einstein... Well, it's going to be pretty boring. Guy's been dead for a while. But his theories tell us that matter cannot travel as fast as light, let alone faster than the speed of light. Light is the fastest stuff there is. It is the universal speed limit. Light through a vacuum is as fast as it gets. If you could travel faster than light, you could potentially travel to a destination fast enough so that if you turned around and looked at where you came from, you'd see yourself leaving from your starting point because you got there before the light did from the place that you left. So faster-than-light travel would violate causality. In the Star Wars universe, you could have a situation where you're looking for a place to land on Alderaan. Suddenly, out of nowhere, a laser comes in from outer space, hits the planet, and the planet done blowed up real good. So then you travel faster than the speed of light toward the direction that the laser came from. And you actually get to the Death Star before it fires the laser. That would give you an opportunity to stop the laser from firing and stop Alderaan from exploding, which you have already actually witnessed yourself, which isn't cool because it violates causality. Generally, that means that effects follow causes, not the other way around. You shouldn't be able to have a cause come after the effect it makes because time don't work like that. Star Wars still has problems with the ramification of causality, but at least it gets around the issues of faster-than-light travel by using alternate dimensions. So instead of hitting a speed that violates Einstein's precious theories, you just decrease the distance between you and your destination. So in this case, you hop into a dimension that's sort of like a shortcut between two points. You're traveling at a good clip, but well below the speed of light. However, your new route shaves off light years of distance between you and your destination, so you get there faster than if you had taken the scenic route. And a lot of people like to use this analogy, including me. Imagine you've got a big paper map. So you find Atlanta on the map, that's where I am. Then you find London on the map, that's where they shot a lot of Star Wars. And you draw a line between the two. You've got a ruler, 
you connect the Atlanta to London using the ruler, and then you draw a line from Atlanta to London. Now consider that a virtual trip between the two cities. The travel time is how long it takes you to draw that straight line. Now, imagine you take an identical map to the first one, except it doesn't have a line on it, and you fold it so that Atlanta and London are touching each other uh, when you have this folded map. Then you poke a hole through the map at that point with your pencil, and it leaves a little bit of a mark both at Atlanta and London. That kind of represents this idea of using hyperspace. Uh, in our universe, we would call it a wormhole to connect to distant points in space together. You'd reduce the distance between your start point and your end point, but you're not moving any faster necessarily between the two. You might be going at your top speed, but you're going at top speed in an alternate dimension that just reduces the distance. It warps space-time so that your destination is close to your starting point. Now, in Star Wars, that all has to do with a fictional stuff called hypermatter and fictional technologies called hyperdrives. We obviously don't have access to that in the real world. And as for warping space-time... That itself is largely theoretical since it would require such enormous amounts of energy that nothing we have ever done comes even close. However, that does lead me to the last bit I want to cover in part one of how the Death Star works, which is the Death Star's reactor. Now, a space station that huge, one that's capable of moving through space at high speeds and firing an incredibly powerful laser, would need a a truly tremendous power source. The Death Star has a hypermatter implosion core, which used that fictional stuff of hypermatter as fuel to produce huge amounts of energy, and the closest thing we might ever be able to make would be a fusion reactor. Fusion power generates electricity by fusing two relatively light atomic nuclei to form a heavier nucleus. This reaction releases energy as a result. It's an exothermic reaction as long as the nuclei are light nuclei. This is the way that stars emit energy. Fusion requires incredibly high temperatures in the millions of degrees Kelvin. And because of this, it is really challenging to pull it off here on Earth. We've done it, but not in a way that is economical for sustainable power. The expense of operating the system is greater than the value of the energy we get out of it for now. So what is going on? Well, at an atomic level... We are forcing these nuclei to get close enough so that the nuclear force kicks in and overrides the electrostatic force that would normally be forcing the two nuclei apart from each other. Now, these are both fundamental forces in nature, or at least electromagnetic force is a fundamental force. Electrostatic relates to that. The nuclear forces, both the strong and weak nuclear force, are stronger than the electromagnetic force, but only at very very close distances. I'm talking about on the atomic scale. The electromagnetic force is weaker, but it has a greater scale of effect, a greater range of effect. So if you can get the two smaller nuclei close enough so that the nuclear force takes over, it will counteract that electrostatic force that's pushing the two nuclei apart. And for lighter nuclei, that creates that exothermic reaction I was talking about, and thus it releases energy. Now, if we ever find an efficient way to harness fusion, it could potentially solve many major energy problems here on Earth. Fusion doesn't rely on heavier radioactive particles the way fission does. Fission is the basis of our nuclear power today. But we just have to find a way to make it work, which, granted, is easier said than done. We may never find a way to do this economically. If we could, however, 
it would be an enormous boon because even though fusion is technically a non-renewable energy source, we have so much of those lighter elements at our disposal, it would take millions of years for us to consume all of it, which means we would have a lot of time to start coming up with alternatives for our energy needs. And in the foreseeable future, possibly long before humanity itself dies out, we would have plenty of energy. Uh, that is kind of the summary of how the Death Star works with its supplemental systems. In our next episode, we're going to look more at how it becomes a truly operational battle station with all the weaponry involved. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Death Star 2 and the Starkiller base as well and the differences between them. Death Star 2 was uh, much bigger than the original Death Star, even though it didn't look like much in the film Return of the Jedi. Uh, but we learn a lot about its capabilities in that movie. So we'll talk more about that in the next episode. It'll also give us an opportunity to talk about things like force fields, because there was one around the Death Star, too. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a real technology, a fictional technology, maybe it's a person or a company in tech that you would like me to talk about, maybe there's someone you would want me to interview or have on as a guest host, let me know. Send me a message. The email address for the uh, the, the podcast is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle of both of those is techstuffhsw. Make sure you follow us on Instagram. And remember, you can watch me record these shows live on twitch.tv slash techstuff. And you too can watch, as I realize in horror, as I record a show, that I made an error in calculations and I have to stop everything, recalculate, and start up again. Because the people who are in today's chat room got to see that happen. And you guys didn't because you're not there. So change it. Go there. Go to twitch.tv slash techstuff. There's a schedule there. I record on Wednesdays and Fridays. Hope to see you in there. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 